Welcome to the discussion, People-Centric Security, Cyber Strategies for the Public Sector, sponsored by Proofpoint. Here's today's moderator, Tom Temin. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guest today is Ryan Callenberg the Executive Vice President of Cybersecurity Strategy at Proofpoint. Ryan, good to have you with us today. Great to be here. And let's talk about the workforce issues that have developed and really are constantly developing and evolving and changing with respect to the pandemic primarily, but a lot of technology change has happened too, adoption of cloud and so forth. And so the workforce, workforce issues, it's a moving target. What do you see right now in terms of cyber? Well, we see the same things that we've been seeing for the entirety of the pandemic. Uh, unfortunately, remote access has opened up doors to ransomware actors that were never there before. Uh, ransomware headlines, despite uh, occasional debates as to whether certain governments have taken action or not, uh, continue to dominate, as I think they will for a long period of time. It's just simply too lucrative for our adversaries. And the really mundane stuff, you know, really does continue to bedevil federal agencies. People are losing money through wire transfers that happen in really simple ways. You can pretend to be whoever you want on the internet when you're not in that same room with that other person. It's very, very difficult to establish traditional markers of trust. And really cyber adversaries of all stripes, whether you're talking about nation state actors all the way down to the lowest level cyber criminal who just watched a YouTube tutorial they all kind of use social engineering to take advantage of us when we're all sitting at home behind cable modems. And when you talk about ransomware, of course, we've seen big instances of this. What is the main vector? Is it phishing? Is that how they get in? I mean, what's the mechanism most uh, of contemporary that you're seeing with respect to that goal of getting ransomware out of an organization? Yeah, there's two main ones. If you're a large organization, like a meaningfully sized federal agency, it's most of the time going to be email. That said, I think we've actually seen a little bit less uh, email targeting federal agencies versus state and local governments, uh, simply because I don't think most of the ransomware actors think a federal agency will actually pay them. Uh, so that's a, a useful thing to factor into long-term planning, and as well as how we kind of think about the policy behind this issue. Uh, that said, though, you know, email is number one pretty clearly for larger organizations. The other one's incredibly common is a really simple one. If there is remote access set up, you might use a VPN client to you know, get to something that lives in a data center that you need to do your work. Uh, you might have something called remote desktop protocol set up so that you know, some vendor can do support of a, of a computer. Sometimes those are just protected by a password. And when you leave that door open, it's almost too easy for the attacker to walk through it. So in a lot of cases, particularly smaller organizations, they're gonna see that. The very, very fancy hacking, exploitation of new vulnerabilities, the vaunted zero days, those happen much, much, much less often than the workaday email attacks and simple remote access abuse that we see day in and day out. And with remote access, then somehow the hackers find a credential they can use to use the remote access, the VPN, whatever it is that the agency happens to be deploying. Exactly, exactly. And sometimes that's easier than in other cases. Uh, there are lots of people who use the same password for their own personal lives. They use it on different websites. That gets uh, out in the public sphere pretty constantly. And you also have you know, traditional phishing attacks that work really well in tricking people to enter their password into a, a simple form. Uh, there's even malware uh, that you can install on your computer if you're fooled into doing so that can steal passwords and cookies and other things that represent your credential. So attackers have a lot of options here. But 
there are very simple solutions uh, that unfortunately not every organization in the world has implemented to make those techniques a lot less effective. Sure. And just one little detail question on the phishing and social engineering. So therefore you could be duped into giving up credentials or you could be duped into clicking on something which would then invoke some kind of a code execution that would get the credentials that way. Yeah, exactly. And I think actually this is one of the areas that I would love as somebody who's spent their career in cybersecurity to demystify a little bit. You know, one of the things that, that I do outside Proofpoint is that uh, I'm on the board of directors of the National Cybersecurity Alliance, which puts on Cybersecurity Awareness Month every October and is mostly funded by uh, a combination of DHS and CISA. Uh, and one of the things I would love people to understand is that these attacks are not magic. And in fact, uh, you don't actually usually get compromised by solely clicking on one thing one time. That used to happen for sure. When you would click on something, the browser what, that you were using, particularly Internet Explorer back in the day, might be vulnerable and the attacker might be able to use that. That almost never happens anymore. So what attackers rely on is usually a little bit more complicated than that. Most of the time, they want you to get it to open an office document like you would pretty regularly as part of the course of what most of us do for our jobs. You know, Word document, an Excel file, something like that. And there's going to be something in there that says, oh, this is protected, and you have to click this button that says enable content, uh, which in technical terms is called a macro. It's really just a bit of code that the attacker is asking you to run. So there's not this magic stuff that just compromises us without us knowing. Yes, that does exist. If you are uh, a journalist in a, an authoritarian country, Maybe you are actually going to see some of that uh, at some point in your life, but it's very, very, very rare for most of the rest of us. It is really more about human vulnerability than technical vulnerability the vast majority of the time. So the implication there then is that training and education are really perhaps the most leveraging ways to get after this than some magic technical solution? Most of the time, that's true. I think for organizations, particularly those that are constrained in budget terms or don't have the technical expertise to run the latest cybersecurity tools, you can accomplish quite a lot by making sure that your people are trained to recognize that if somebody sends you an Excel macro from outside the organization that pretends to be an invoice that you didn't expect, please, please, please don't run that macro. That said, if I were thinking about a broader way to protect against these people-focused attacks, you know, certainly you want to be delivering fewer threats to the average person. It goes back to the remote work question. You know, everyone is a bit exhausted these days, maybe not uh, able to apply the right degree of scrutiny to things that they're uh, seeing in their inbox versus what they might have been able to do two years ago. Uh, so ultimately, yes, there are valuable technical solutions that can make sure fewer threats get delivered. But the people really are, in most cases, going to be that last line of defense. And if they don't fall for the social engineering, the attack most of the time will not succeed. And that actually is a tremendous point of leverage, to your point, that uh, many organizations perhaps haven't taken full advantage of. And so what are some of the state-of-the-art training techniques and education techniques to make people out front here in your cyber defenses? It's a really good question. I think we've gotten to the point where the generic cybersecurity awareness training that most of us who have been employed at a large company have clicked our way through, you know, is not necessarily what is 
going to be shifting the paradigm. Uh, if you think about the state of the art, the state of the art is really about focused, tailored things. We expect focused, tailored experiences for most of the things we do, whether it's visiting an e-commerce site or even increasingly interacting with the information technology that our employers provide. And security awareness training is no different. If you're in the finance department, you're going to see a really different set of threats versus one of your colleagues in IT. This is, your colleague in IT has a lot of technical privilege, might see a lot more malware. You might see somebody trying to redirect a payroll uh, uh, statement or somebody who's trying to uh, get somebody to buy gift cards or somebody who's trying to redirect a wire transfer to a supplier. All of those things are much, much more likely to impact a finance professional. So the state of the art really does depend on that personalization where organizations that are particularly well instrumented when it comes to cybersecurity can even understand that there's a small percentage of their population. You might have 100,000 people in an agency, maybe about 5% of them ever get an interesting attack. And so being able to shrink the problem and then tailor the training really, I think, is the way to succeed in the future. And I'm imagining that maybe scientific and research and what you might call the egghead types of organizations in some ways, because they come from a more collegial culture, say, than finance or IT, might be even among the most vulnerable because maybe they're a little bit more, I don't know, naive about it, expecting the best of colleagues that, hey, take a look at this set of data I just came up with. Uh, you definitely sound like you work for the FBI, uh, but you're also not wrong. Uh, I will say when I got into cybersecurity over 20 years ago, uh, one of the first places I ever tried to build a cybersecurity program was a big biotech company headquartered in California. And they objected to any form of access control because research is open. They all came from university backgrounds. Information should be free. That is what is going to stimulate innovation. And that was absolutely insane, given that the technology that they developed was worth tens of billions. So in the intervening couple of decades, obviously progress has been made on that point. But to your point, I think you're really emphasizing an interesting point that is under discussed, which is culture. Culture really, really does matter. If there is a culture of see something, say something when it comes to cybersecurity, and if there is a culture of understanding when risks are taken with data. When somebody's clearly sharing things or configuring things in ways that are risky, if that culture exists, you're in a much better place, even when it comes to implementation of things like technical controls. And a lot of organizations, and particularly leaders on the information technology and cybersecurity front, do better when they focus on their people. They build that culture. And that has really, really positive knock-on effects, because there will never be a technical solution to every cybersecurity problem. You will always have to give people access to the data that they need to do their jobs. And if there's a strong culture reinforcing that if that data is stolen, if that data is sent to an adversary nation state, there are consequences to that, and cybersecurity is actually looking for that, and that's not what we do here, it's much, much, much less likely to actually happen. And every federal agency and pretty much everybody in cybersecurity these days is talking about zero trust and a zero trust architecture, the constant challenge of a credential and the resources it's trying to touch. So it strikes me that a really good zero trust program is about the best backup you can have behind your training so that if a credential does get out, that credential can be challenged successfully by your zero trust architecture. Fair assessment? I think so. Uh, that said, zero trust is 
almost more of a conceptual framework and maybe best described as a journey rather than even a set of controls. Uh, again, going back a couple decades, we did have the same idea. And actually going back even further, if you look at you know, the foundational texts of cybersecurity, this notion of only give people the privilege they need to do their job or least privilege has existed for a very, very, very long time. And zero trust is basically an updated version of that. I think the most useful form of zero trust that I've seen federal agencies adopt, and this is also to some extent true in the, in the private sector, is basically treating every computer like it's untrusted and it's on the internet. Like it's not anything that you can trust just because it happens to be on the same network as you. And so building all of your other controls with that baseline assumption in mind has actually become a really useful way to make sure that one compromised credential malware on one endpoint doesn't turn into a bigger issue. The one thing that I would add to that though is zero trust, unfortunately, in a cloud architecture does, if you don't design it well, fall prey to the exact same things that happened in legacy data centers. And legacy data centers actually had some security advantages given that they were not sitting on the internet. And one of the obvious ones is you know, this, this uh, idea that we, in technical terms, called domain trust. Basically, when you have a computer logged in on pretty much every you know, federal agency's network, you're part of a domain. And that's so that one administrator or a set of administrators can basically make changes to all of those computers at the same time. That's one of the key reasons that ransomware succeeds because you have to build these administrative tools to manage an entire fleet of computers that have this trust in, in this domain, as we call it. Uh, that is a broken idea in lots of different ways. And unfortunately, some zero trust approaches just think of it like a network thing, like, can I connect to this? But the other way you're connected is that same set of tooling that can impact every single computer in the agency. And that's where I think there's really some interesting work being done in the future of Zero Trust that will really help things like ransomware attacks become less common. All right, we're gonna take a short break on that note. And when we come back, I wanna ask you about some specific client case histories and give us some examples of how this all gets put together. My guest today is Ryan Callember. He's Executive Vice President of Cybersecurity at Proofpoint. I'm Tom Temin. This discussion is People-Centric Security, Cyber Strategies for the Public Sector, sponsored by Proofpoint here on Federal News Network. Proofpoint knows protection starts with people. Today's attacks target people, not just technology. Even your most vigilant people will make digital mistakes. Proofpoint helps you protect your people, data, and agency's reputation. We work on premises, in the cloud and across email, the web, social media, and more. In today's digital economy, your people are your greatest asset and your weakest security link. With Proofpoint, you can build a defense that starts with them. Visit proofpoint.com slash public sector. Welcome back to our discussion, People-Centric Cybersecurity, Cyber Strategies for the Public Sector, sponsored by Proofpoint here on Federal News Network. My guest today is Ryan Callember. He's Executive Vice President for Cybersecurity at Proofpoint. I'm Tom Temin. And let's get into some examples of how this might all be set up, the, the chain of training, the people-centric front end of all of this, which you said earlier, and I think correctly, is, is really the key to protecting agency assets. And then what that is backed up by in the state of the art in terms of some of the technology. Yeah, there's some really interesting diversity of experiences that you get into when you start looking at your cyber defenses through the lens of your people. 
uh, I can recall one uh, fairly large federal agency that had really interesting kind of targeting going on. You know, we've always had notions in the physical world of VIP security, right? We have the, the Secret Service <laughs> amongst other uh, sterling examples of that. And in cybersecurity, we kind of always had a one-size-fits-all approach where you know, everybody's kind of behind the same firewall, they're running the same security software, they're probably authenticating in the same way. And ultimately that doesn't actually map very well to the risks that we're trying to defend against. So this particular agency saw that exactly the sorts of people at the top of the pyramid were targeted that they would expect. Uh, the, the people that were very obviously public figures uh, that somehow, that sometimes made controversial statements in the media, they were getting attacked on a more frequent basis. But apart from the VIPs, there was an interesting set of people that, that we call actually VAPs, very attacked people, that didn't necessarily have the same level of profile. Uh, you could probably find them on the internet with a Google or LinkedIn search, and they probably had access to something super interesting, but they're not the same people that you'd give you know, the guys in dark suits and, and earpieces to. Uh, so ultimately, it was very interesting to go through this journey where we looked at across, I think, about 20,000 people, there were only about 150 getting interesting attacks. And this is actually pretty common to find. And an interesting attack is also an interesting thing to define. It could be something coming from an advanced adversary, you know, a nation state threat actor, something along those lines. It could be something that you can't necessarily tie to a, a group, but it's really targeted. It only shows up in this one place. And that uh, is itself pretty interesting in uh, the way that we usually think about the intelligence behind this. And also, you know, you have to factor in impact. If this is something that is, is tied to a ransomware actor and it can take the whole organization down, that's pretty high impact. If on the other hand, it's simply a threat actor who's mostly famous for financial losses, well, that's bad, but it's not as bad. Uh, so factoring in, in, in impact is the other way to kind of figure that out. And ultimately, this organization got down to, as I said, slightly north of 100 people that they needed to, needed to do a better job protecting. And once they've identified those people, and they worked in all kinds of different job functions, actually in all kinds of different places, uh, they were able to actually design a program where those people got better protections. They, uh, they had the links in their email protected differently opened in isolated containers rather than clicking straight through to the browser. They had more security awareness training. It was more tailored to them by the cybersecurity team, which could actually handle that customization effort when you're talking about 100 people and not 10,000 people. And they were also monitored differently. Their, their endpoints that they used uh, were uh, very carefully examined in terms of the activity they generated. Their cloud accounts were likewise um, given more scrutiny than the average uh, person at that organization. And that really did lead to a meaningful reduction in risk, which was great to see because it didn't actually change the way that 20,000 people worked to better protect the mission of the organization. That's really interesting. You said that of those 100 people out of, say, 10,000 or some numbers, large numbers. 20,000, actually, yeah. 20,000. They had different functions in different locations, but there must have been some connecting thread in the eyes of the would-be attackers. Uh, some of them had their email addresses easily findable through Google and LinkedIn. That is a common thread for sure. Uh, in, uh, in our world, we would call that uh, bad OPSEC, <laughs> bad operational security. Uh, there's also a thread through the titles these people have. So if you're maybe going to put yourself in the shoes of a threat actor, there's something that you want access to. 
And you could probably figure out, all right, I'm going after this agency. They have a footprint on the internet. I know that they have these IP addresses. Maybe they're running like web servers or something. I could try and figure out if there's some vulnerability there and then pivot onto some internal system and try and you know do all these things that are, are, are absolutely possible to do, but are a huge pain and actually take a very, very, very long time. Or like water flowing downhill, I could simply find the person who likely has access to the thing I want and send an email directly to them with a payload that gets me what I want, whether that's malware on their computer or their credential. And as you would probably expect, the latter approach is much preferred uh, by every class of threat actor who is doing targeted operations. And uh, the other common thread is these people, despite the fact that they're not the most senior level in the organization, they all had access to something pretty interesting. There wasn't anyone who was, you know, an intern who showed up on day three. Uh, it was it was all people who had access to something that that was meaningful to protect. Interesting. So that could be then contracting officers, for example, who have oh, to very frequently procurement officers, contracting officers, anybody who can potentially move money or uh, has access to a procurement system where something can be set up. They are always going to be targets because that's where the money is. And also, I'm thinking grants making staffs. Uh, you know, and maybe financial staff, but probably not as much because you may be counting the beans, but that doesn't mean you can generate them. You can move the money. Yeah, exactly. So it, it is generally people in the finance department, like an accounts payable, accounts receivable, you're actually moving money from point A to point B. That makes you a much more interesting target. If you're in a bank and you have access to the SWIFT system, you know, there's lots of ways to get uh, in that particular set of, of crosshairs. The other one that I would actually point out, though, is we have absolutely seen groups that were trying to do insider trading. So the result of a contract award, when it actually referred to a publicly traded company, might actually be super interesting information. So certainly the, the, the parts of the government, notably the SEC that deals with those sorts of things, have seen threats in and around that ecosystem of information. And as a matter of good practice, do you tell those people that they are possible targets so that they know what's going on? That is actually one of the more fascinating aspects of this. And we always recommend transparency and saying, yes, you are a very attacked person. You are a VAP. And the reason why is somewhat interesting. Uh, I had expected when we came up with this whole concept, because to my knowledge, no one else has ever built something like this that could tell you out of 20,000 people, you know, who the top 100 most attacked are. Uh, and when you actually told somebody that they were on this list, they found it flattering. It was a huge ego boost to say that someone cared about them. Someone was super interested in the work they were doing, even if that person was a cyber criminal. So in that moment, it became really a golden opportunity for security teams, not only to underscore the value of the work that they were doing and personalize it to their organization, but somebody who had just been told, wow, you're number 10 out of 20,000 people, they would happily adopt any control that the security team wanted to roll out to them. So they weren't thinking, oh, you're going to make my job harder. You're going to give me more hoops to jump through when I'm just trying to get something done. It was more like, wow, I am extremely important. I'm gratified to be that important. And please do protect me. Roll up those black SUVs and <laughs> do the, the digital equivalent of giving me a, a, a security detail. What you don't want is people to be like the character in that movie who was the only one that did not know he was living in a soundstage set. Yes, the Truman Show, right. <laughs> you want people to know what's going on. Totally. You, yeah, you absolutely do. They change their behavior. And that is the sort of thing that is 
inimical to kind of, or sorry, to really inherent to kind of building really good culture uh, is that open communication with people, like the value of what the cybersecurity team is doing all day, every day, and the people that they are protecting. It's just the sort of thing that you can identify with. It's not bits and bytes. It's not ones and zeros. It's tangible in a way that certain other aspects of cybersecurity, unfortunately, aren't. And of course, there have been some recent cases of ransomware, simply, as you mentioned, having to be paid and even some governmental units at the non-federal level, educational yep. institutions have just coughed it up. And the companies seem to be smaller and smaller that are getting hit by all of this. So what are, you know, beyond these educational and people-centered things, what do you back up your people-centered approach with in terms of actually protecting the money? Uh, what is it that that is taken away that is ransomed in the first place, and how do yeah, you? It's a, that? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and it's ever evolving, right? Because ransomware is just basically extortion enabled by cryptocurrency. It is no more complex than that. So they're looking for different points of leverage where they can make the extortion scenario more compelling. Uh, that originally manifested itself in a really simple way, where they would ransom a single computer and maybe even a single set of file types on that computer pictures, Word documents, spreadsheets, the sort of thing that an individual might really value, you know, your family pictures, for example, it was one of the earliest targets of this modern wave of ransomware, which started in about 2015. After that, they moved on to what was called big game hunting, because they realized that the functioning of all of the domain joined computers in an entire organization was really critical to keeping that organization functional. You know, you saw just um, recently Howard University having to cancel classes because of a ransomware attack. Uh, and the continued operations of the organization is a great point of leverage, and there probably won't ever be a better one than that. Uh, what we now call double extortion was usually stealing a bunch of data in addition to trying to disrupt the operations of the organization. There's lots of ways that that gets done, uh, but uh, it's actually worked a lot less effectively than the traditional form of ransomware of actually interrupting what the organization is doing. Uh, there are now many different flavors where uh, organizations are seeing that individual senior executives are having their email compromised and potentially embarrassing bits pulled out. Again, threat of publication is just yet another form of extortion. So all of that is likely to happen. But when you think about kind of the defense aspects of this, it's not that complex of a problem. There's only three ways in which ransomware is going to get into your environment. One is email phishing, obviously, and defense in depth means you know, blocking malicious emails with technology, making sure people are well-trained not to run those macros, and also other controls you might have on your PCs or your network to detect things once they've already gotten in, which uh, is, a, is a useful, what we call defense in depth measure. Financial losses though are a different beast entirely. And oddly enough, you know, if you look at the FBI stats on this, uh, what we call business email compromise, uh, which does affect federal entities as well, it's just really losses through various forms of identity impersonation and phishing is actually a more expensive problem than ransomware. Uh, ransomware losses are in the hundreds of millions in terms of what's been documented that's probably underreported and the economic losses don't actually in, really properly account for the disruption there. So maybe that's low, but if you're talking billions, you're talking simple things like business email compromise. Well, you have given us a lot to talk about and think about, and we appreciate it very much. We are out of time, unfortunately. I want to thank today's guest. Ryan Callenberg is Executive Vice President of Cybersecurity Strategy at Proofpoint. 
I'm Tom Temin. You're listening to Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, please visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Proofpoint. Thank you for listening to the discussion, People-Centric Security, Cyber Strategies for the Public Sector, sponsored by Proofpoint on Federal News Network.